It's Friday, July 6th, and this is The Daily Dive. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt has resigned after months of ethics controversies, citing unrelenting attacks on himself and his family. Pruitt has been the subject of more than a dozen investigations over spending taxpayer money on travel, excessive spending, and much more. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, joins us for that and also to lay out who the president's frontrunners are to be the next Supreme Court justice. More now than ever, our lives are centered around our phones. Photos, contacts, sensitive information. We have to keep track of those apps and try to never use a public Wi-Fi hotspot. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today, joins us to talk about how to keep cyber thieves out of your smartphone. Finally, you see them all the time on social media. Celebrities hawking the latest fitness fads. Celebrities are swearing by lollipops that make you lose weight and teas that help rid the body of toxins. We'll speak with Josh Ocampo, reporter for Mike, to give us the lowdown on whether or not these products are worth your Instagram likes and more importantly, your money. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I've spent the last three days interviewing and thinking about Supreme Court justice as such an important decision. And we're going to give you a great one. We're going to announce it on Monday. I think you'll be very impressed. These are very talented people, brilliant people, and I think you're going to really love it, like Justice Gorsuch. Uh, we, uh, we hit a home run there, and we're going to hit a home run here. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios. So we're going to talk about the top frontrunners for President Trump's Supreme Court pick. But first, we had to mention that EPA chief Scott Pruitt has resigned amid months of investigations and ethics controversies. Briefly, who's going to take over for him and what has he been accused of? President Trump quickly tweeted after news broke, accepting Scott Pruitt's resignation and thanking him for his time calling his work, quote, outstanding. He also added that Pruitt's deputy, Andrew Wheeler, who formerly worked as a coal lobbyist, will be taking over as acting administrator in the meantime. Scott Pruitt was under investigation for some condo he was renting for like 50 bucks a day, a super sweet deal in the D.C. area. And he's just involved in a bunch of controversies. That is correct. His resignation was anticipated by many after he was hit with numerous scandals while leading the department, which included uh, spending millions of taxpayer funds on special security details, purchasing uh, lavish decorations for his government office, such as a $43,000 phone booth. He requested to use flashing lights and sirens on his motorcade to cut through the D.C. traffic and, of course, renting an apartment on Capitol Hill for a lobbyist, reportedly for only about $50 a night, which is far under list price in that area. Oh, man, he just wanted all the perks he could possibly get, I guess. Let's move on to the other big news. The president is going to be announcing his pick for the next Supreme Court justice on Monday. Who are his frontrunners? Our sources are telling us that Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Judge Raymond Kethledge, who isn't particularly well known to the conservative movement, are both considered to be the frontrunners for Trump's pick to replace Justice Kennedy. His third pick on his short list is appellate court judge Amy Coney Barrett. Our sources told us that during Trump's previous opportunity to choose a Supreme Court justice following the passing of Justice Scalia, both Judge Kethledge and Judge Kavanaugh were on that list, which court watchers thought to be pretty significant, although he, of course, ultimately went with current Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. All three of them are pretty young. If they're confirmed to the Supreme Court, I mean, they're going to be in place for decades. 
All of them are at or around their early 50s. Brett Kavanaugh, as I mentioned, one of his front runners is a federal appeals court judge in Maryland. He is a graduate of Yale Law School, just graduated in 1990. He has been working on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit Court since then President George W. Bush nominated him. And before being appointed to the appellate court, he worked as a top White House lawyer for Bush and clerked under Justice Kennedy in 1993. He was also an attorney for the office of the Solicitor General, so he certainly made his way around Washington before. And Raymond Kethledge, just like Brett Kavanaugh, uh, also clerked for uh, Justice Kennedy, right? He did. He was also actually nominated by President George W. Bush in 2006. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan, where he received both his undergraduate and law degrees, and he is a judge still in Michigan. On top of all of this, he also had a stint working on Capitol Hill as counsel to former Senator Spencer Abraham and also founded a boutique litigation firm in Michigan. Amy Coney Barrett, the youngest of the the group at 46, she clerked for um, Justice Scalia, right? She was a clerk for the late Justice Scalia from 98 to 99. She was also a clerk for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit from 97 to 98. She is a judge in Indiana and, of course, went to uh, Notre Dame Law School, where she has taught classes, as well as GW Law School. So all of these picks have had their time in D.C., so we will just have to wait to see who gets to come back. Has there been any reaction from uh, senators at all? I know Chuck Schumer supposedly called the president and and urged him to consider Merrick Garland. Obviously not going to happen, but has there been any other reaction from any other senators yet? Not that we've seen so far. There's obviously been an overwhelming support for a few of the former nominees from conservative senators and congressmen on the Hill, but nothing deliberate outside of Schumer's call with the president encouraging him to tap Merrick Garland, which, considering that the nominees that are currently on Trump's shortlist are so different from Merrick Garland's stances, that's pretty unlikely to happen. What do we know about the thought process behind what President Trump is picking? I know some people have said that he wants the all-American look. I know Amy Coney Barrett might face some problems with regards to Roe versus Wade. And a lot of people are just saying, you know, it's that personal touch that really is going to be the deciding factor with President Trump, how he feels about that person. Absolutely. And Trump's ultimate decision will, as much as any factor, likely come down to his personal rapport with these candidates, preferring to choose who he feels most comfortable with in a personal setting. Now, we've seen this before, how Trump makes a lot of these very, very high-profile, high-power picks through his personal relationships and how he sees the person and the kind of very close relationship that he believes he can have with them in the long run. All right. Well, the announcement is supposed to be Monday. Might happen earlier. We never know with the president. Thank you for joining us. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios. Thank you so much. I get emails almost every week who say, I've been taking photos and videos of my kids for a year and my phone broke and I never back them up. What do I do? Joining us now is Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. We're going to be talking about how to protect your smartphone. Our lives are increasingly being run on these things. 
But I have a quick story that ties into this. My wife took a lift a couple weeks ago and she left her phone in the back seat. She got home and she's like, I don't know where my phone is. So we tried calling it. Nobody answered. So we had to track it down with the find my iPhone feature. And she was very worried about a lot of the sensitive data that she had on there. We had to end up tracking the guy down at a Pollo Loco. And we found him. <laughs> we found him in the line ordering his food. And we said, hey, we left our phone in there. Can we grab it? And, and everything worked out just fine. But I found your article on how to protect a lot of your data, and it seemed to fit in perfectly. What do you do to protect yourself in the case of theft or you just lose your phone? The absolute first thing you need to do is to back up your phone's content on a regular basis. You can do it in a couple of different ways. You can do the cloud. So your wife may use iCloud if it's an Apple device, or you can go with like a Dropbox or a OneDrive from Microsoft. It doesn't matter which one you go with, but you can often do that. The cheaper way to do it is to simply connect your phone to your computer if you've got a laptop or a desktop at home, and it could be a PC or a Mac, and just use software to back it up. So iTunes, there's an option there, just one button click. It makes a mirror image of your entire your iPhone. So should you lose it or if it's damaged, you just buy a new one and then you connect to the computer, you click restore within iTunes and then it dumps it all back onto your phone as if it was the one that you've been carrying around with for months. How safe is the cloud? Because I've always been really reluctant to do it and I go the other route. I'll back it up to my computer regularly. So I tell people to hedge your bets. Try to do both online and offline backups. It is generally safe if you stick with the big names like Apple and Microsoft and Google and Dropbox. Stick with the big guys. Have a password that's hard to guess. And if you can, use what's called two-step verification or two-step authentication. So not only do you need your password to access your cloud files, but you also need a one-time code sent to your mobile device. So that's, uh, if you're nervous about the cloud, opt for what's called two-step authentication. Uh, But it is safe. But offline backup, is also great because it's local. It doesn't require an internet connection to access and it's cheaper if you've got a lot of files. I get emails almost every week from readers who say, I've been taking photos and videos of my kids for a year and my phone broke and I never backed them up. What do I do? And unfortunately, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Second thing you can do, use a passcode. A surprising number of people don't have any way to log into their phone because they find it inconvenient. That is not good because if somebody finds your phone and there's no PIN, password, or fingerprint recognition, then they're just going to have access to all your stuff. So that's a no-brainer. Use your thumb, use your face, something to identify you to log in. The third is to be weary of apps that you download if you're not familiar with the company, especially on Android, because it is a little bit more of a a vulnerable operating system. If you're on the Google Play Store and you see an app that is from an unknown company or don't download it, never be the first to download a new app. Wait till other people do it. Read the comments. Wait till there are literally tens of thousands of downloads and then download it from a trusted developer because it could be what's called a Trojan problem, a malware, a malicious software. You think you're downloading a game of Sudo or whatever. But in fact, there's a hidden file or program inside that is stealing your information unbeknownst to you. Right. And one of the important things that you also mentioned here is to read these app permissions. If you're not reading those permissions, you're giving them access to a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And and I know we often don't understand them. We're not lawyers, but those terms and conditions are important. There's no reason why a video game, for example, needs access to your microphone, your camera and your contacts. That should raise a red flag right there. A couple of other things. If you are on Android, Uh, install software, install antivirus. They exist. They're not expensive. They could even be free. Make sure you enable find my phone like your uh, wife did. That's something that you have to set up in advance. Quick question. 
quick yeah. question on the antivirus stuff, because I don't think a lot of people really consider their phones hackable in that way. Does it look like the same thing on a computer? It slows down your phone or something like that? What does it yeah, look like? Yeah, so good software doesn't. Good apps don't. Uh, I use the Norton Mobile Security and they do not, it does not slow down your device, uh, but it does scan every app you're about to download and it will warn you if it's been flagged as, as a problem. It makes sure that you don't click on links and attachments from suspicious people because you couldn't be inviting more malware or malicious software. It uh, backs up your files for you. So there is a cloud element there as well. And often they provide what's called a VPN, a virtual private network. So if you're going to be surfing the web on a hotspot, like at a coffee shop, it will make you anonymous. So you can't be seen by anyone else on that network that may want to try to steal your data. One of the tips you put in here specifically, it says don't use public hotspots. <laughs> Better yet, yeah. just stay to your cellular connection. But tons of these coffee shops and things like that, that's the first thing that they put public Wi-Fi because people don't want to use their cellular data but we shouldn't really be sticking to that. I err on the side of caution and I don't join them because you are more prone to a cyber attack if you do join a free public Wi-Fi hotspot than if you don't. That's just the facts. For sure, do not conduct any transactions like banking or online trading, online shopping. Anytime you have to put in a password, just stick to things like streaming iHeartRadio, reading the news. That's all good. You know, what I do is I just use my cell phone connection as a personal hotspot. So even if I'm on a laptop and I'm at a coffee shop rather than joining the Starbucks Wi-Fi with everybody else there. And there could be malicious types there trying to hack your information. I just turn on my phone's hotspot and I join my phone and that's a lot safer. All right. Mark Saltzman, tech columnist for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I look at Instagram and I think, wow, do I need to clear my toxins? And then I think, wait, I don't I don't know that I have any. Joining us now is Josh Ocampo, reporter for Mike. We've seen these all over social media, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. Celebrities constantly endorsing lollipops to help you lose weight, detox teas, gummies that help your hair and nails grow better. You got to take all these things with a grain of salt. They might not always be exactly what they seem. Josh, you uh, wrote an article for Mike and looked and talked to some uh, some people to give us a little clarification on what they might and might not do. So who are you talking to and what uh, products are we looking into? I spoke to quite a few people. I think I spoke to about three registered dietitians, a registered nutritionist, as well as a professor at the Department of Nutrition over at Hunter College. While there are a ton of these different products on social media, we want to kind of stick to the main ones and the ones you see very commonly on, on celebrity Instagram. So the first kind of category were the appetite suppressants. Kim Kardashian posted a lollipop by a company called Flat Tummy Company. It faced a lot of backlash because a lot of people criticized her for her influence on, on young women and also what this does to people and whether this actually has any beneficial effects. I spoke to a clinical nutritionist about particularly about Fat Tummy Co. Lollipop. And the brand promises that this lollipop will kick cravings and suppress appetite. Well, when I spoke to the clinical nutri nutritionist, she basically said it was nothing more than a placebo effect. <laughs> and she just couldn't find any benefits in any of the ingredients that comprise a Flat Tummy Co. Lollipop. There you go. I, um, right there, the ingredients, because it's made of cane sugar, brown rice syrup, <laughs> saffron extract, and natural flavors. If what, if anything, in that lollipop would help you lose weight or anything like that? I will say we, I did find a recent study that found that perhaps saffron extra may reduce the tendency to over snack. However, there is 
very, very little evidence. So I'm even hesitant to say that. That said, it technically, it could help. It couldn't help. There's no way to totally verify that because there's insufficient evidence. And as you said, it's a placebo effect. I mean, if you were eating a lollipop or something, you're thinking, oh, this is going to help me lose weight. I'm not hungry anymore. You're going to do it to yourself. And then you're not going to go eat that cheeseburger or something like that. That's exactly what could happen. But they do say you got to be careful with some uh, other supplements, uh, like caffeine-based ones, because those can be a little mm-hmm. dangerous. When I spoke to a dietitian regarding caffeine-based appetite suppressants, what we found is that they actually counteract general health. They can increase your heart rate and potentially create cardiovascular issues. And what we ended up finding overall when I spoke to all of these different specialists about appetite suppressants is that if you're going to be using them, they should be used under medical attention. And really, the only times in which that is the case are for morbidly obese individuals who are at a hospital under full medical attention and require very specific prescribed appetite suppressants. But that's also something we did not totally dive into only because those aren't the ones you see on Instagram every day. So how about detox teas? Because I think this is the one that I Mm -hmm. see the most everywhere, specifically this brand Fit Tea. I see it all Mm -hmm. over the place. Right. Yeah. Those are probably the most common ones I also see. When I spoke to the professor of the Department of Nutrition at Hunter College, he essentially said that toxins by definition are poisonous chemicals and that any other claim about toxins is kind of just a marketing scheme. They're using the loosest of terms to describe toxins. Yeah, the absolute loosest version of it. And it actually kind of works. I mean, I look at Instagram and I think, wow, do I need to clear my toxins? And then I think, wait, I don't I don't know that I have any. And <laughs> according to my conversation with that professor, it's a really brilliant marketing ploy. I guess the only side effect of drinking these teas is that it maybe works as a cleanse. You know, you're not drinking soda and other junk food. So at least it's a a healthier alternative. So you're working with that at least. The alternative is that you're eating a bunch of junk food and instead you're just having a tea. In theory, yeah, it kind of is benefiting you, I would think. That said, it also begs the question, why use fit tea if you could just put hot water and get a tea bag, you know? So (laughs) I love the way you think. Um, Are these things regulated by the FDA at all? Technically, yes. However, they are not regulated as a category of drug. And so with that, the onus is essentially put on these manufacturers to prove to the FDA that they are not necessarily fulfilling what they promised to do, but just from what I understand, just that they won't necessarily injure and or seriously maim people. And it's a really interesting note that on the FDA website, they clearly state under dietary supplements that they are not intended to cure diseases, health diseases, or anything of that nature. One of the important things in the article that you wrote, the bottom line context matters. It's these things aren't going to be a cure-all for anything. And I love one of these uh, dietitian and nutritionists that you spoke to, uh, Jane Detroyer. She said, people are spending hundreds, 200 $500 on supplements. They could have probably saved that money and just went on a vacation. Yeah. yeah. She said that she personally even knows people who use or spend, you know, $500 a week on supplements. And she thought in her head, they should go on a vacation or was actually not included in the article. Maybe they should go to therapy and and figure out if there are deeper underlying issues. That that might be a better use of the money. Josh Ocampo, reporter for Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.